BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California tribes, they struggle with a high rate of people who've gone missing or are murdered, especially women and girls. For the Yurok tribe along the state's north coast, one of those missing women is Emily Rissling, a mother of two who was last seen in October of 2021. The Los Angeles Times' Hannah Wiley spent months reporting on the tribal community and tracing the generational trauma that contributed to Rissling and other women ending up in a missing person file. She joins us along with members of the Yurok tribe and the tribal police chief investigating Rissling's disappearance after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In her reporting on the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women in California, LA Times reporter Hannah Wiley writes, in Indian country, Everybody seems to know somebody who's gone missing or been murdered. According to the Sovereign Bodies Institute, at least 183 Indigenous women and girls in the state have disappeared or been murdered as of 2021, a number believed to be an undercount. For the Yurok tribe, one of those women is Emily Rissling, a 32-year-old mother of two who was last seen nearly a year and a half ago. And joining me now is Hannah Wiley, politics reporter for the LA Times. Welcome to Forum, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. Also with us is Blythe K. George, Associate Professor of Sociology at UC Merced. George is a member of the Yurok Tribe, who co-authored three reports on missing and murdered Indigenous women in collaboration with the Sovereign Bodies Institute. Welcome to you, Professor George. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Could you help us understand a bit about the scope of the crisis here in California today? Your report... It arrived at 183 women and girls who've disappeared or been murdered in California as of 2021. But you believe that's an undercount, as I understand it. What do you think the real number is? Well, that's always the difficult part with this issue is that uh, kind of, as you said in the opening, um, for most of us in Indian country, it's it's very personal. We're only ever one or two people removed from this issue. And so we know firsthand, uh, tangibly, countless cases. But when we go to try and document this in a kind of official reporting capacity, there's many limitations on the data quality. And so at the very least, we know it's an underestimate. But I fear, you know, that that number could be 
on an order of magnitude greater, especially if we think of it within a historical context, that unfortunately those 183 are only uh, what we've been able to count and is um, documented within the last you know, uh, 10 to 15 years, let's say approximately. But if we put it within context, we are, we're talking hundreds, if not thousands of women, girls, two-spirit relatives, as well as our men and brothers who are being taken uh, through violence or, or going missing. And we never know what happened. Yeah. And as you say, people often know someone personally, they're connected to it in some personal way. And you know, personally, Emily Rissling. Can you tell us how you know her? Yes, I um, was very fortunate. She and I actually went to high school together. We were in Native American Club at McKinleyville High, and she was the year ahead of me. And what was always so amazing was um, we were both very academically inclined. We'd always wanted to be lawyers, and so Hmm. we were kind of on the same track for a lot of things. But she was a couple steps ahead of me, and so I I knew that I could do certain things because she had done them. And so I, for many years, was kind of following in her footsteps, uh, I, I I was always um, so struck by how grounded she was in our culture and our ceremonies, and she was as smart as a whip, and so um, I couldn't help but look up to her. Yeah. Hannah, you spoke with Emily's parents. What did they want you to know about Emily? Um, they wanted me to know all about Emily's accomplishments as a kid and certainly in high school. She was the class president all four years. She got a great scholarship to go to school. She studied political science and uh, came back to help her community after she graduated. And that was the Emily that they really wanted me to know and understand in my reporting process, that she was a loving mother and she was an accomplished dancer, seeped into the ceremonies, as Dr. George said. And uh, they wanted me to, to leave knowing that She had this history of just generosity, kindness. She was a great friend. Um, Her mom told me that she couldn't go to the grocery store or out into the community without someone saying, are you Emily's mom? She helped me do X, Y, and Z. I mean, (laughs) she was a generous person. And you say that's what they really wanted you to know. Do you mean as opposed to the circumstances surrounding her disappearance? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, Um, And it's laid out in the latest report uh, that Dr. George co-authored. Emily unfortunately fell into um, a combination of domestic violence, substance use, mental health issues. And um, that's what her family attributes to her eventual disappearance. She kind of did a turnaround from the Emily that they knew as a child and as a high schooler and college student. Yeah. Blythe, George, you've talked about how Emily was never offered access to services, mental health services, and if they were, they were cursory interventions at best. What do you mean by this? Yes, well, it's difficult anywhere in the United States to get quality mental health, right? We know that we need to prioritize it better as a society, and this is particularly the case in rural areas, right? There are resource constraints across the board for almost every kind of service or amenity, what have you. And unfortunately for mental health, this is particularly the case um, in, in, for example, in this uh, rural region where I'm from, where Emily's from, we, we don't have access to certain kinds of facilities, whether it's a dual diagnosis facility, which is a kind of place that could address um, co-occurring mental health issues. And so if you're someone who 
for example, may have um, bipolar disorder or or any kind of uh, mental health condition in that capacity, but then also struggle with substance use disorder, that requires a specific kind of facility that can meet you on both those levels. Uh, for us, the closest one is uh, six hours away. It's in the Bay Area. And locally, the resources we have access to are, are uh, spread thin at minimum. And so to be able to actually access them, there are so many things that have to be true. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, Emily's case was never deemed to be true or real enough for access to the services that we have locally. And that was despite many efforts by her family, by uh, law enforcement, by Benny, who, who hoped that if they brought her there, she would be able to get that help. But in a context of such scarcity, uh, that help never came. Yeah. You've also said that it's hard to hear when someone goes missing a lot of focus and emphasis on the choices they could have made. Do you feel that from within the community or outside of it? What do you well, attribute it to? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to, you know, the previous point of what, how we want to remember Emily, um, you know, she, she had been my right hand during my dissertation and it was about three years, I think, before she, uh, went missing. Um, it took, and I can't even say that it took that long to get to where she was when she was finally taken, that, that it was, it happened so fast, but it also, people want to focus on, uh, the substance use disorder. They want to focus on the erratic behavior. The last picture in the newspaper with, with crazy eyes and shorn hair and, um, Instead of those questions, we should be asking, why was she not offered the services she needed when she was brought to the places that were supposed to help her? Why are those not the questions that are more compelling? And I think that, um, unfortunately, you know, it's, it speaks to the larger society of where it's much easier to kind of put the onus on a person and their individual choices rather than take accountability for a system that has failed them and arguably all of us well before someone is actually taken. And when it's happening at the numbers that you have already found, but also suspect to be much higher, it's indicative of something much broader, isn't it? Blythe George. Yes, yes, I am. Um, that is exactly it, that when we try and focus on individual choices, we have to, you know, as a sociologist, I'm always kind of putting it in perspective, that if we step back and really see... Uh, you know, different circumstances, different times. It's not the case that they're all making the same choices and that's what's winding up there. Instead, there is a system, a colonial system, in fact, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, critically thinking, we have to realize that in many ways, this is a system working as it was designed. The fact that indigenous women are still being hurt, still being taken, and that no justice is ever found is actually one of the kind of fundamental tenets of the colonial system that we sit in today. And so so there is so much that has to change for individual choices to actually amount to anything both positive or negative. But but because of, you know, American society and the individual ethos we have, more often than not, we focus on what we could have done different for something to have changed rather than putting it within that larger structural context. 
We're talking with Blythe George, Associate Professor of Sociology at UC Merced and a member of the Yurok Tribe. Also Hannah Wiley, politics reporter for the Los Angeles Times, who reported the story, California Tribes Grapple with Generational Trauma and a Crisis of Women and Girls Going Missing. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have a connection to California's indigenous communities and want to tell us about that or to stories like this, or if you have specific questions or reactions to what you're hearing from Blythe and Hannah, feel free to email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Hannah, as a journalist that came into this community to report from the outside, what did mm-hmm. you learn that struck you most, that made you say, I need to spend some time here and really understand what's happening? I think we just heard so much of it from Dr. George. I mean, I was struck. uh, I'm normally a state house reporter. I cover politics and policy, but I was struck by, um, you know, an upward uh, trend of bills that were introduced in the state house to address MMIP, the missing and murdered indigenous persons crisis. And so I figured there might be something there, that there might be a movement toward progress or a movement toward a solution, toward help. And so I started spending a lot of time not only with the Yurok tribe, but others as well, families of missing loved ones, people who were killed, um, spent a lot of time talking to tribal leaders about the problem. And it's just so rooted in this state's history. I mean, California entered the union technically as a, quote, free state. And I learned through my reporting, you know, I knew it before, but but it's laid out plainly in some of the reports I read. It was not a free state. It allowed for the indentured servitude of young Native people, um, it was really important to me to not only learn about the history of the problem, but about the the efforts that the tribes are taking to move forward and are asking for help from the state, from the state that helped um, create this crisis. And so, yes, I was coming from the outside. What struck me is the generational trauma, as we're discussing. And also, I think Dr. George mentioned at one point, there's trauma in the DNA of some of these communities. And uh, that was what, that was number one for me. Hmm. Well, we'll look at all of that after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking a closer look this hour at how the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is affecting one California tribe, Humboldt County's Yurok tribe. 
Thanks in part to the reporting of Hannah Wiley, politics reporter for the Los Angeles Times, who reported the piece, California Tribes Grapple with Generational Trauma and a Crisis of Women and Girls Going Missing, and also to the insights and research of Professor Blythe K. George of UC Merced, Associate Professor of Sociology there, and a member of the Yurok Tribe, and with you, our listeners, who are invited to join the conversation with your thoughts, your questions, any connections you might share that you have to stories like this, or even to generational trauma and how it's affected you, which is a very deep part of this experience. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. I want to bring into the conversation now Judge Abby Abenanti, Chief Judge of the Yurok Tribal Court. Judge Abenanti, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for concentrating on this issue. Also with us is Jean uh, Greg O'Rourke, Tribal Police Chief, who is investigating Emily Rissling's disappearance. Greg O'Rourke, really appreciate you being on with us as well. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I know that you knew Emily too. She was your, your foster daughter, Charlene's babysitter? Not just my foster daughter, but also my biological daughter, um, Yes, Emily babysat both the girls. I understand you worry about Charlene being on a path or disappearing like Emily. Can you tell us a little bit about Charlene and why you worry about that? So Charlene was brought into our life when she was about six years old. She actually is the biological daughter of Sumi Wan, who is one of our local missing women mm-hmm. with... Um, really no indicator of what is or what can resolve that. So Charlene grew up uh, within dysfunction in her home uh, due to just that historic trauma in her community. She was eventually removed from the care of her grandparents and she was placed in our foster care. She lived with us for about six years and then when she turned 12, she really started acting out as she started in Uh, looking into her mother's disappearance. Hmm. So we struggled with her running away, uh, being habitually uh, truant uh, and incorrigible. She was starting to experiment with both alcohol and drug use. We contacted and made several police reports with our agency that had jurisdiction and requested that the reports be forwarded at tribal court, which they were kind enough to do, the deputies taking the report. And eventually, Shar was removed from our care and custody just because we were no longer able to provide a safe home. And then after that, she continued to struggle um, with her own trauma and ended up getting involved in a relationship that was with uh, domestic violence, got pregnant as a teenager. She tried to get back into a rehab to get clean and... She struggled with that, and so it was kind of a case in point where we could see just system failure over and over and over again, and could see an MMIP case happening right before us. Yes, could you talk about that a little bit more? What did Charlene's experience of trying to get help, your experience of trying to do that as well, revealed to you about the problems with the systems in place to help someone like Charlene 
the systemic failures. So when she started experimenting, we attempted to get her into counseling. She needed to be able to deal with that uh, core trauma that she's gone through, but there was no funding for it. The only way that we could be able to provide funding either through the tribe or Indian Health Services was wait until she actually got addicted. Hmm. And so at one point I was on the phone with the Western Regional Director for IHS and he's trying to explain to me that there's nothing that they can do until she's actually addicted. So instead of treating the trauma that's going to lead to her addiction, they needed to wait until she became addicted to just treat the symptom of addiction of her trauma. And that just didn't make any sense to me. And then after she turned 18, she's legally adult, she was having suicidal ideations. She found the courage to be able to check herself into uh, our local mental health hospital up here. The doctors there determined that she met the criteria for 5150, which is a welfare institution code for uh, danger to self, um, others are gravely disabled. But they had no bed space. And so they hmm. sent Charlene over to the local hospital and they were uh, looking for bed space out of the area. Charlene called me crying and she didn't want to go. She was afraid and scared. And so as I was finding, uh, finding out from her and talking to the charge nurse at the hospital what the process was, it turned out that she was getting shipped to a different county to be able to have bed space. Now, from a very clinical perspective, the hospital was viewing this as providing um, a bed for her to receive the help. But then when you look at it through the eyes of a very confused, hurt, scared young woman who just turned 18 and was having suicidal ideations, she finally had the courage to go someplace, ask for help. That place said, you need help, but they're going to ship her off to someplace else. Yeah. And... Dr. George already mentioned that the mental health uh, institutions up on the North Coast are just not up to par. And so they're going to do a minimum and then send her off with a bus ticket home and a voucher for a motel room without any notification to her family, without any notification to her tribe, because technically she was an adult. And so, again, just another example of a systemic failure to be able to take advantage of a community that wants to be able to be involved and help their people. There's this line, uh, Chief O'Rourke, from Hannah's piece that I was really struck by, where you're quoted as saying, the system is not allowing us to actually take care of our children before something happens. And uh, what you're describing really seems to reflect that. And Hannah, I'm so struck also by hearing uh, Chief Greg O'Rourke talking about how Charlene's struggles stemmed from the disappearance of her own mother, Sumi Wan, who you did learn a little bit about in your reporting. Can you tell us a little bit about Sumi Wan? <laughs> Um, yeah, I talked to uh, those close to Sumi Wan, um, who described her as you know gentle, kind, quiet, very, very quiet. 
um, woman who struggled with her own mental health issues, including severe depression. Um, and she was a young mom of three girls, including Charlene, her youngest. And uh, the one woman that I talked to who who uh, worked with Sumi Wan as a homeless co- coordinator um, said that she was that it was really important that people understood that Sumi wanted to do good in her life. She she was a kind, sweet person. Uh, Charlene, when I talked to Charlene, Charlene didn't remember too much about her mom, um, but she said that she's heard that she's kind of like her, that she, um, you know, is drawn to art, that she's can be quiet as well. Um, and so I did learn about Sumi in the context of Charlene and being a mom of three, just in the same as the same story over and over again. And same with Emily Risling and so many other people that I talked to. It's an unfortunate trend as we're discussing. Yeah. Judge Abby Abinanti, so hearing about Charlene, hearing that her babysitter, Emily, has disappeared, that her mother has also disappeared, just underscores how how often this happens um, and and how many people they affect how interconnected the community is. And I know you've thought a lot about and tried to work on the impact that this has. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen the frequency of this and the interrelatedness of this impact the community? Well, any community that has this sort of invasive behavior brought into its midst is going to suffer. And we have. And the families suffer and it goes intergenerationally. So you have the incident, the person obviously has suffered and then their family and the community suffers and the worry. I mean, you heard the chief describe his worry for his foster child that still is with him, not unreasonable. That's what happens. That's how we go forward. And that's what you're creating is this tremendous amount of worry and systemically you know, it's a large problem that needs to re- be resolved on a large statewide basis. And so that's why the attention that the state is paying to us is really important because this is not just our villages who are impacted. This is Indian country. And California is the site of the highest number of native people of any state. Right. That's between urban and rural. We have 110 tribes in this state, plus 50 tribes in the queue. And then you have all the relocated people who were forcibly moved here by the federal government and essentially deserted. You know, and this created a horrific burden on the state and on the tribes that were here. You know, for them to pull jurisdiction out of this state and not give the state any assistance at all for the assumption of jurisdiction over tribes has created a vast gap in services and it's you know rural areas are under-resourced and and this just adds to it yeah well we've got calls coming in and i'd like to go to mona in madera hi mona thanks for calling what would you like to share um hi ladies um thank you for having the courage to speak um it's there's a documentary out right now that is called Bring Her Home. It's a documentary on missing indigenous women in the United States and uh, of all the tribes. And I, I think it's mainly from Minnesota area. 
um, Indian and uh, an elder, and uh, I have 35 years of sobriety. And there is a way out, and there is hope. There is recovery. It can happen. And I just want to say that that documentary is so important for everyone to see. It is called Bring Her Home or Bring Them Home. It's a documentary on the missing and murdered Indigenous women in the United States. And the, the there are some women champions in our government right now that are championing. Uh, the, they are paying attention these three women in our government. And Deb Holland is one of them. And uh, there's hope is all mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. There's hope. Well, Mona, thank you yeah. for pointing out uh, that hope. And yeah, Blythe George, why is it that it's missing and murdered Indigenous women? I know that there are also men and that you have also documented that as well. But why is it so often that it's happening to women and girls? Yes. Well, I I really appreciate that question because I think it's always important to point out that when we do say MMIW and and we include uh, girls and two-spirits in that as well, it's not to the exclusion of our male-bodied relatives, our men and our boys by any means. What's actually unfortunate is um, across almost every indicator, tribal people are you know, whether it's suicide rates, whether it's uh, health outcomes, we're always the most likely to die soon. And the only ones who know that same likelihood are our male-bodied relatives. But even still, it is our women, our girls, and our two-spirits who are disproportionately experiencing violence and have since the invasion began. Uh, as, As the life givers of this continent, in order for the land to be conquered, our bodies had to be conquered too. And and it's it's a harsh reality to know as a tribal woman that that I am just as likely to die by homicide as I am heart disease or or uh, the other leading causes of death. That for us, the third leading cause is homicide. And as I said earlier, unfortunately, this is a system and an outcome by design that that without a concerted effort otherwise will continue functioning in this way. And when we say MMIW, it is to hold space for the fact that even as we as a community experience these outcomes across the board, it is our mothers, our sisters, our cousins, our aunties that are are disproportionately being hurt and taken from us far too soon. Uh, Professor George, Hannah said something interesting where she pointed out how you talked about how trauma is in our DNA. Can you talk about what what you mean by that? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, I actually, I also work on prisoner reentry, and that's, that's what's really difficult is that, uh, you know, to, uh, first, I also want to say very much thank you to Mona for sharing her story because, yeah. um, what I have noticed is that our, ma- our our men, our boys, they may struggle in the same ways as Emily and others, whether it's substance use disorder, whether it's uh, the kind of violent impulsivity that can come uh, after a lifetime of trauma and abuse. But it's also, um, you know, they often get a chance to come home. It's our women and our girls who are taken before they get a chance to get clean and to get help and, and come back to us in a good way. And it comes down to the fact that 
we think of trauma often at the individual level. We have solutions, whether it's therapy, whether it's treatment, right? We think of it on that level. We don't hold space for chronic traumatic experiences across the life course for generations and how you know the science is only now catching up being able to quantify this but we know tangibly that trauma impacts us at the level of the dna it changes how our genes are expressed even within the span of one person's lifetime and so over time those changes accumulate and and Beyond that further, not only do we have this DNA accumulation of trauma, we know that adverse childhood experiences, for example, actually change brain structure, mesolimbic function. There are ways that from the level of our DNA to the telomere structures, all the way up to our actual wiring of our brain that is accumulating a trauma, both within our own lifetimes, but it is inherited through our bloodlines. Um, many people don't know that that, you know, if... You know, I was in my mom as an egg while she was gestating within my grandmother. So that means that what my grandmother experienced was actually tangibly expressed in my own DNA down to that level. And so that's how you can see the DNA and the trauma being passed down, but also our resilience and our strengths and our, our power. Yes. But unfortunately, these things go together. Yes, they go together. Um Again, we're talking about generational trauma in the context of the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. The Northern California's Yurok tribe is trying to address this, trying to achieve justice for those who have disappeared. And they're with us today. Dr. Blythe K. George is Associate Professor of Sociology at UC Merced and a member of the Yurok tribe. Gregor Rourke is Chief of Police of the Yurok Tribal Police. Abby Abenanti is Chief Judge of the Yurok Tribal Court. And Hannah Wiley is with us, politics reporter for the Los Angeles Times. So are you, our listeners, sharing your thoughts and questions. And I'll get to more of those right after the break. So hang on. You can email forum at kqed.org to join the conversation or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And you can always call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We'll have more just after this break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking this hour about how Northern California's Yurok tribe is addressing the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. And we're joined by Hannah Wiley, politics reporter for the LA Times, who reported on this in her piece, California Tribes Grapple with Generational Trauma and a Crisis of Women and Girls Going Missing. We're also talking with Judge Abby Abenanti of the Yurok tribe and uh, Greg O'Rourke, chief of police of the Yurok tribe. Also, Professor Blythe George, at UC Merced, an associate professor of sociology. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation. And this listener writes, I appreciate the focus on the missing women and the necessary discussion of neglect in the systems. However, it seems that there is another element here, the perpetrators who might have committed sexual assault or murder. Beyond helping the victims and preventing more harm, there are criminals out there right now. Is is this also an underfunded and neglected effort? Judge Abenanti, do you want to address this question about also the role of the perpetrators and the attention that needs to be paid there? Well, I think we partner here at home with our law enforcement. We see them in a traditional role as protectors. Now, when this state had Public Law 280 imposed on it, what that meant was that the federal government withdrew support for law enforcement, that it turned it over to the state of California without giving them any financial assistance for that new jurisdictional area. So the work that we've done with our court and with our law enforcement, we've done by grant writing to set up this structure. That's a very hard way to create an infrastructure. So they left a gap of law enforcement. And we have fortunate because we've worked really hard. We have our member, Chief O'Rourke, who has a lot of experience in law enforcement, but he's still building up his department so he can respond. Now, this is not the kind of thing that, that can be done overnight. It's the kind of thing that needs a lot of investment in in the services provided and in the personnel. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you there. That's all right. I mean, we're, we're keenly aware of the fact that we need to develop protocols, that we need to have assistance, that we need access to federal systems. And we're working very hard to get that. And you see people like um, Secretary uh, Haland going, you know, we're, we're going to do this. Um, and she's helping and she's setting up in, in the Department of Interior assistance so that local police, meaning our police, can do that. And we're very fortunate in Humboldt and Del Norte County that our chief is able to partner with the sheriff's department. And we have good relationships. That's not true with other tribes and in other parts and other regions. You know, so it's it's a difficult systemic issue that needs to be addressed. It isn't just, okay, well, they decided not to do it. No, it's a lot bigger than that. Chief O'Rourke, could you talk about this, just about the resources that tribal police officers have and how hard it's been, though I know there have been some accomplishments related to trying to get resources that are for police more broadly? Um, kind of a broad question. Uh, in Right now, in California, criminal jurisdiction is the state's responsibility uh, to provide that onto reservations, and that's Public Law 280. 
our state police are CHP, Fish and Wildlife, ABC, and they don't necessarily deal with the penal code. So then that responsibility falls down to the sheriff's office. Now, California for the past 10 years has been experiencing a exodus of veteran law enforcement that the state has never seen before. People are not only just leaving the profession, but they're also leaving the state in and of itself. And so that has created a gap of services all up and down the state. And so larger agencies with bigger uh, budgets are able to lure lateral law enforcement officers from smaller agencies, including smaller rural sheriff's offices. Now, reservations are oftentimes in, set aside into a rural area of the county. And so when that county can't provide full staffing, it draws its resources in, which takes away a law enforcement response from the reservation. So, I mean, that is just kind of the baseline from that. Hmm. So tribal police now has to um, try to step in and provide those services, but we're not given the tools to be able to provide an equal response as a sheriff deputy because of Public Law 280 and uh, nowhere codified in any code, tribal police technically doesn't exist in the state's eyes because there's just nowhere in the government code, civil code, or the penal code that recognizes tribal police as a law enforcement entity. Wow. So if we break down what the role of a peace officer is, just to its very, very basic principle, is to protect the vulnerable. And law enforcement is being asked to protect a vulnerable com uh, community but yet the agencies that are responsible for providing that can't due to staffing shortages. And so then tribes will look within themselves to provide law enforcement for their own community, but yet we can't because we're not on equal footing as any other state entity. I see. So, I see. so that is, that's like I said, it's really kind of a broad, broad yeah. question, but that's the basis of the lack of resources. My understanding is that the tribe has accomplished the long-time goal of hiring an investigator to work on missing persons and homicide cases, Chief O'Rourke. Uh, do you see, what do you see as the impact of that? Do you see it being enabling you to, to ramp up your efforts to find Emily Rissing, for example, Sumi Wan and others, or at least understand what happened to them? I don't necessarily know if it, quite honestly, is going to be able to resolve those issues. The genesis of this investigative position was, you know, it really was just kind of based off of an idea of what if. And that what if has a bit of a history. So historically, Native people have an inherent mistrust of law enforcement, and that goes all the way back to legislative intent that was designed to save the man by kill the Indian. And boarding schools was one of those attempts. Yeah. When social workers would go to a home or onto a reservation and forcibly remove children, they needed protection from the families. And so they brought sheriff's deputies to act as a protective person while the social worker removes children. And so that traumatic experience has imprinted and passed down this mistrust of law enforcement. 
And so the what if for the investigator is what if we had a veteran law enforcement officer who could liaise between Native communities and the agency of uh, jurisdiction in working these types of cases. And this came from just anecdotal experience because Native communities have a sense of investment in their tribal police. And that's something that really is unique and quite honestly, the paragon of community policing. Um, and I've seen that even with my own department. Uh, my officers are deputized, we're deputized in both Humboldt and Del Norte counties. And so my officers have responded to calls to other reservations that are you know, neighboring to ours when those tribal citizens see my officers with a tribal patch, they feel a sense of connection just because they actually see a tribal police patch. And yeah. they're more willing to speak with them. They're more willing to cooperate. They're more willing to provide information that's going to be pertinent to the investigation. And so that's the hope of this investigator to be able to provide that liaise, that liaison between the communities. Yes, but there's still a lot to be able to address for for good reason, as you describe. Hannah, if you could just briefly talk about other efforts at the state level to try to address this. I know in 2018, Assemblymember James Ramos, a San Bernardino area Democrat, made history as the first Native American elected to the legislature in his trying to help address some tribal issues. Has there been progress there? A little bit, yes. Um, one of his uh, bills a couple of years ago uh, handed some more resources to the State Department of Justice to investigate the need um, to handle MMIP cases and to study the problem. Now, everyone I talked to uh, said, you know, that's great. That's a good start. But tribes already know what the problem is. And so there needs to be more initiative to get more stronger, uh, just stronger action at the state level. So Assemblymember Ramos last year, uh, he wrote a law that established um, a so-called feather alert. So it's an alert system that goes off when someone in the community, a Native community, goes missing. And uh, he helped secure some money in the budget um, for tribes to use to handle MMIP cases. Um, tribes are asking for more money this year. Um, and then there's a couple of bills that he's introduced this year to um, get to what um, to uh, Chief O'Rourke had said to um, basically allow uh allow law enforcement to be considered peace officers in California. That provision of the bill has been written out, uh, you know, unfortunately, tribes say, and then also help them get access to a statewide system that handles uh, restraining orders that allows mm. tribes and local law enforcement to communicate basically and say, like, here is this restraining order that's been put into the system. Um, please honor it. And it's a way that Tribes say will help prevent more domestic violence cases and prevent more violence um, and more injuries, more missing cases, et cetera. So there is movement. There is progress on the state level. I think tribes are hoping for more progress. They're hoping for more enforcement. They're hoping for bolder action. And my conversations with Assemblymember Ramos has been there's initiative to do that. It's going to take a couple of years, but that there's a legislature that's now willing to look at some of the problems and address solutions and write them into law. Hmm. 
We're looking at the issue of California's epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and taking a closer look at how the Yurok tribe is trying to address it. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Michelle in Santa Clara. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have maybe one. Right. I'll do a call. Yep. We'll see if we can try to get Michelle on a clean line in just a moment. But uh, one of the things that I was struck by, um, Blythe George, in looking at your report um, with the Sovereign Bodies Institute, was there was this moment there where you talk about how Indigenous traditions themselves can serve as prevention in the MMIP, MMIW crisis. Can you talk about that? Yes, I think... um... You know, we actually started this hour talking about Emily being someone who was is deeply grounded in our culture. And, um, you know, it's I always tell people it's very hard to prove things with uh, statistics. It's actually, you know, a sleight of hand. You got to cut it this way, that and the other. But one of the only things that we see time and time again that is protective and restorative is our, our access to our culture and knowing who we are as a people. And and for our our women, girls, as relatives as such, we, we are sacred. And we had ceremonies that honored that sacred nature, uh, our flower dances, for example. And there, there's just an entire conversation about how to, how to promote indigenous resilience and how to make us thrive, that if we had the conversation there, we wouldn't be having the conversation we have now about what to do after someone's been taken. Mm-hmm. And and there is just, you know, going back to the point earlier too about the way the trauma can hurt our DNA, we, we are learning now that the actual rhythm and character of our ceremonies down to the tempo and the way we sing, the way we move together, that actually restores telomeres on, on the level of the DNA, our 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 culture is not only protecting us, it's actually restoring what has been hurt through generational trauma. And so finding ways to uh, access our culture and make sure that, you know, from our first days through school, through through college, that people have access to this information and not just tribal people, but that the larger state uh, realizes who we are and what we bring to the community because we have teachings that would not only be protective and restorative to us, but to our communities more generally as well. Judge Abenanti, you talked to our producer, Caroline Smith, about how you encounter people who are connected to missing and murdered Indigenous peoples every day. And I'm wondering what you, what you say, what you try to do. All you can do is say, I know I'm sorry for your pain and I promise I will not stop trying. You know, and that's what we're in the position of doing is we're aware of the problem, we're aware of the pain and it's up to us to say, we will use all of the resources that we can gather to focus on this and to resolve that. We know it's wrong and we feel bad and we stand with you. Yeah. Well, Jennifer asks, do authorities have any suspicions about what happened to Emily? Chief O'Rourke, what is the status of of her case? So in cooperation with two other law enforcement agencies, the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office and Tupelo Valley Trail Police, at this point, there honestly is no indicator of foul play in Emily's case. So right now, the sheriff is 
ready to, has already made the request to the BIA uh, and requesting their national MMIT task force to come in. So we've been working with the sheriff's office to lay out our portion of the investigation uh, into a timeline uh, as succinct as possible to be able to turn over to the BIA's task force. And hopefully with fresh eyes and a different perspective, we might be able to uncover something that we haven't. Yeah. How is Charlene doing? Char is doing well. So we just got a text from her last night that she will be graduating her uh, her program uh, in Arizona this Friday. So we're working on trying to um, make sure that she has a safe place to come home to. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful to hear. Um, well, Patty writes, it is worth noting that a great many indigenous people were living healthy and productive lives in California before the waves of conquest, which swept through the state. They were kidnapped, tortured, enslaved. The result of all of these invasions and assaults on their personhood and cultures is terrible generational trauma. I think the state reparations are in order. Hannah, there were so many names that you encountered, sadly and tragically, while you were uncovering what you called this trail of generational trauma. And before we go, I'm wondering if there are any other names you would like to mention. Yeah, thanks for that question. I've met countless family members and tribal leaders themselves who have a deep tie and connection to this problem. And I want to thank them for telling me their stories. They didn't have to, and they chose to. And if I had all of the ink possible to write every single one of their stories in detail, I would. I want to mention there is one particular case that still sticks um, sticks in my head deeply. It's the case of Khadijah Britton, who um, was last seen in 2018, uh, according to her FBI profile, she was being pushed into a car at gunpoint by her ex-boyfriend. She's not been seen or heard from again. I sat with her family. Um, it was a deeply emotional interview. Uh, I want to thank the Britton family for talking with me and sharing their daughter's story. There are a couple of other cases, Virgil Bustles, one in Northern California and Andrea White, but the names, the list is long. Yes. Well, I think you said it best. I so appreciate all of you speaking with us today. Professor Blythe George, Chief Greg O'Rourke, Judge Abby Avenanti, and journalist Hannah Wiley. You did not have to speak to us, and I just appreciate that you trusted us with these stories. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.